Open up your Bibles to Psalm 15. Psalm 15. A Psalm of David. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes are in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Bow with me. Lord, we come to you recognizing that you are worthy. You are the Lord God. You are creator, your sustainer. You are all that we have. And in your mercy and loving kindness, you saved us from our sins. Lord, we come to you because we need your instruction. We need your word. Your word is giving us life and direction. Lord, your word is mighty full. And Lord, it is a double-edged sword. Lord, it is not only speaking to those who hear, but it is also speaking to me as I read and meditate on it. And Lord, I want to pray for me and I want to pray for us. Use us in, your, in our weakness. Lord, we are weak. We need you. Help to speak your word in clarity. So that your name alone is glorified and exalted. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I want to say thank you to Mark to allowing me um, to, to, to preach and to, to teach to you. It is a great privilege. And I want to say thank you to various people of you because... Yesterday, I got some text messages, very encouraging, and your love and your support is, it means, it means much. Last week, we heard a great message about forgiveness from David. And that message granted us and made us very clear that we are forgiven. Today, we are looking at A psalm that is speaking about true worshipers. And if you hear the term worship, what comes into your mind? We live in a time where worship has very different connotations. 
People have different ideas, different concepts when they, when they talk about worship. Some might think worship is making melody. It is singing. Other might associate with worship a good feeling that comes in doing it. But what is worship? And who is a true worshiper? Today, we are going to look at Psalm 15, where you will see three features of a true worshiper so that you can examine your worship. And if you take notes, our outline today is a three-part outline, very simple. We will see in the verse one, the desire of a true worshiper. And we see that divided Uh, in the second point where we see the character of a true worshiper. And then thirdly, we are going to see the promise towards a true worshiper. When we open up Psalm 15, in the very beginning, we can see a Psalm of David. David is clearly the author of this Psalm. And there is much we know about David. David is a man who is exalted in scripture as a man who is, who lived a life pleasing to God, a man after God's own heart. And that started in a very young age. He was found as a shepherd, shepherding the flock of his brothers faithfully. And he went out to bring things and provian to his brothers. And he saw how a Philistine, a Gentile, is speaking badly about the God of Israel. And in his young heart, he has the conviction that cannot happen. And he speaks to his brothers and asks, how can such a uncircumcised man speak like that about my God? about our God, about the God of Israel. David has a zeal, a strong affection and love towards God. At the same time, when we want to see the greatest mess up in life, we look to David. David's life is very transparent to us. But we see great repentance from David, who after being convicted, turns, seeks the Lord, and seeks reconciliation with God. And that David is writing that song, this psalm. And it is very, very uncertain what the very correct context of the psalm is. But I will lean on the great prince of preachers, Spurgeon himself, who thinks that this psalm, who asserts that this psalm is written most likely after the tragic incident that happened in 2 Samuel 6. In 2 Samuel 6, you can see how David intends to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem after it is held by the enemy at the Philistine camp. And he does that. 
And he does that in great manner and in great, um, we can say, in great prominence. But what happens? One of the people who are involved in carrying that tabernacle, uh, that Ark of the Covenant back to the city. He reaches because he thinks the tabernacle, is, uh, the Ark of the Covenant is going to fall. And he is struck down by the Lord. It is a tragic incident that happens there. What happened? David was not. The people were not exactly following the demands of God on how his tabernacle and his Ark of the Covenant needs to be transported. They put it on a new vehicle. They, and David was sitting on a mighty horse and it was a big show in showing victory. But that is not how God wanted his Ark of the Covenant transported. They repent and they do it the right way. And you know what is interesting? David himself goes in front of the place and he's only dressed in an ephod and he is showing, depicting himself before the, God, before the Lord God, not as a king, but as a slave and showing the people and all of the, all of the um, people of Israel This is God and I am his slave. And with this context in mind, come to this Psalm 15 and understand the plead and the question that is asked by David towards God. And he's asking in Psalm 15, Oh Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? We see here that David is addressing God as O Lord. And if you don't have a, have a LSB and you have a NASB, it is capitalized. And what is in there is David is addressing the Lord with his covenant name. He says, Oh, Yahweh. And it is so specific and significant because it is an expression from David towards God that he has personal knowledge about him. And he, it is an expression of submission to his authority and sovereignty. David is alone in his address speaking to God as, Oh, Lord. Very personal and intimate. This is an intimate address from David towards God as the covenant keeper, as the God who is faithful. And at the same time, it is an address that makes clear you are sovereign, you have authority, and I am. I am a servant. So implicitly, David is putting himself under the rule of God, of Yahweh. And he is asking him very vividly, who may 
abide in your tent, who may dwell on your holy hill. And in this address, we see a deep desire from David to be with God. If you go, if you look very closely to David's address, you can see two words, abide and dwell. The two words here are addressing a desire that is not just to be there for a short period of time. No, it is speaking about a lasting, a lasting dwelling with God. And you see here in the first address, he's speaking to God and saying, who may abide in your tent? And here he's talking about the tabernacle. We live in a time where God, where the temple for God in Jerusalem is not built yet. If you know your Bible, you know that it is not allowed for David to build that temple. Solomon, his son will build the temple. So what they have is the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, if you go there, you can see that no one was allowed to abide in that tent. The tent was divided in two compartments. In the first one, the priest went out in the mor- went in in the morning and the evening to do the sacrifices, to look at the, sh- uh, the bread and um, the incense. But only once a year, A priest, after huge amounts of rituals of cleansing and cleanings were allowed to go in. And even then, he would wear a bell on his garment and he would have a rope on his feet. So if he is unworthy to go even in there and dies and is struck down, people can pull him out. It was a frightening experience. But David says, I want to abide there. David says, I want to be there. And then in the further, in the next um, address, he says, who may dwell on your holy hill? So the next thing is, On the place where God is, on that holy hill, where he is, I want to live there. I want to abide. Dwell and abide. A lasting wish with God expressed by David. Please make that observation that David is not asking for an hour in the morning, for an hour at night. For a prayer before food or for a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening. David wants to be with God constantly, continually. He's speaking about a lasting manifest, a lasting dwelling, a lasting period of time with God. And he's asking to be where God is. In Israel, where the tabernacle was and where the holy hill was, that was the presence of God. So David's desire 
David's heart is to be where God is. He wants to be in the presence. And then another word, look closely into the text. It says, in your tent, on your holy hill. He just don't want to be on the back corner. Yeah. Like some of you guys here. Yeah. (laughs) No. He says, I want to be in and I want to on. David seeks the closest place to God. Do you see the desire he has to, to be with God, to be in the presence of God? And he does not want to just see something. He's not a paparazzi, you know, he goes around and he want to take a look and then he want to run away. No, David wants to dwell. David wants to abide in the presence of God. We see that David knows who has the authority and who makes the ground rules because he's addressing God as Yahweh, the covenant-keeping Lord, and humbles himself. We We see how David has the desire to abide and dwell in worship. And then we see that David wants to be as close as possible to God. We have a saying in German, it goes something like that. Mittendrin statt nur dabei. And I wanted to translate it somehow. It, it means something like, in with the action, not out on the sideline. David wants to be where God is and not on the sideline. Let me ask you, do you want to be? Do you desire God and his presence? Is that even something that, that is in your mind and you meditate on and you think about? Why did you come here? Is it the Lord, his presence, his ne- the nearness to him? Or do you have ulterior motives? Let me tell you, friend. A true worshiper desires to be as close as possible to God. And to receive from him the instruction for worship. And he wants to abide and dwell with that mighty Lord. How can David say that? How can David have such a love and desire for that? Because he knows who God is. If you don't have that desire, if you don't have that urge, if you don't get goosebumps in reading that desire and the will and the love for God that David has, you don't know God. For David, it is the greatest place to be. So this question, who sets the tone for the entire rest of the psalm? David asks the Lord and the Lord answers. And we can see the 
Lord answers. And that answer maybe surprises us. Because we will, we are, we are seeing that worship, dwelling with God, being in his presence is not a formula. It is not a recitation. It is not something we do or we bring to the table. We can see that being and dwelling with God, the true worshiper is defined by his character. The true worshiper is defined by his character. And I will, if you look closely to the text, you can see how we can see triplets over and over again. And this triplets can be even divided again in three subsections. So we can see the character of a true worshiper from verses 2 to 5b. And the first point we can see is the character of integrity in verse 2. And we see and we read there, he who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. Let's take a close look at the words that, is, that are used here. It says in verse 2, he who walks, he who works, he who speaks. And all of these things are given in a continual sense. These are all things that are done continually. And in the first part, we can see how the first thing we notice is, is that, the, that the true worshiper, he walks with integrity. And walks here refers to a lifestyle. Yeah. When in the Old Testament, Walking is described, it is talking about a pattern. It is talking about your lifestyle. And the lifestyle of a true worshiper is that of integrity. It means to live a life that is upright, a life without stain. It is living the same life inside of the church and outside of the church. It's living the same life when people are seeing you. And the same light, life, when all the lights are off and you're alone in your room, maybe on your computer. It is the same life that is lived throughout all areas of life. You're not a person from eight to five and a different person from six to ten. Does it mean sinlessness? Does this mean a life of integrity that you never sin and you live a holy and you live a sinless life? No, it doesn't. The same word, and it's very interesting, it is used for Noah. If you go to Genesis 6, 9, Noah is described with the same word. In Genesis 6, 9, it means, it says, These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? The same description about Noah. That means Noah's lifestyle was a lifestyle of integrity where he walked according to the standards of God. And then we see further 
um, and, and then, um, and even this word, um, even the integrity here, we can see, we can connect it with the New Testament where it speaks about the elders who are above reproach. Yeah. So even this quality is still continued in the New Testament for elders and even for every Christian. Nothing sticks. It doesn't mean sinlessness. It means a lifestyle where integrity is there. And if something happens, you repent, you repent and bring it right with God and others. So the first point is a walk, a lifestyle of integrity. And then we see further and walks and works righteousness. It means he does what is right in the sight of God. People want to do and accomplish what people themselves think is good and right. But the man who works righteousness is working that that is righteousness in front of God. That is righteous in the sight of God. So the man is not just a man of integrity, the true worshiper. He's also a man who lives ethically right according to the standard of God. And we see all the time people lie and compromise. Even Christians. That is not a true worshiper. This is talking again, not a moment, not an area. It is talking about your habitual life, your ordinary lifestyle, day in and day out. And then in the third we see, and speaks truth in his heart. That is one Speaking or saying that what is corresponds with reality. When I look now into the room and ask, are you a liar? I think everyone would say, no, I, I speak the truth. I speak the truth. But notice very clearly what the Psalm says. And speaks truth in his heart. It is not necessarily only what you say. The psalmist is going one, one, as, uh, one level down deeper and asks, are you speaking truth in your heart? It is not only the mouth, but it's in the heart. And the heart is considered the center of the will, the place of decisions and intentions. This is speaking of the sincerity and accuracy of what is spoken. How often is your speech sincere and accurate? Doesn't this reveal our inner being? How we really are inside? God does not care about your outward appearance. Our Sunday morning face doesn't matter for God. God is talking about our inner, inner being. When we speak, it should be true. It should be with no hidden agenda, no half truth. And something I notice all the time in my speech and even here in the world, exaggeration. We flatter people. I often hear guys walking around and speaking. 
the myth, the legend, the one and only. Yeah. Be careful. The righteous man, the true worshiper speaks good. You know, we so easily make lying available and harmless. We make it accessible. But he speaks truth in his heart. The true worshiper that God desires is a man of integrity. Whereas character is one of integrity. Where his walk is integral, in, it, a walk of integrity, the works are righteous and he speaks truth in his heart. But now he's not done. David moves to the character in relationships, verses 3 to 4b. And we see here, he does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. He does not slander with his tongue, we read. Now, we've seen... What we see here are again three, a triplet. And we see three negative acts toward the next of kin. Yeah. And if you look closely to the text, you can see here. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does he evil to his neighbor, nor takes approach against his friend. So we're talking about the relationship to others. And we see here, he starts with the tongue and the word. What he's using for slander is very interesting, yeah? Um, In a different verbal form, and I want to just give some meat for the nerds, yeah? So the word um, slander in the PL, yeah? (laughs) It is actually used to spy out a city, you know? You remember when Moses sent out spies? To look into Canaan. The whole goal was to. Go and see the weakness. Go and seek the problem. See go and seek that what is bad. That what is of. Weakness. And that is what he's speaking about. To find it weakness and problems. And to spread them. With the goal of harming others. This means spreading damaging gossip that is usually untrue or unverified. But we enjoy that. We live in a world, we have magazines full of slander. And the the sad truth is that we bring this into the church. We like to talk but we often don't talk good about others. What we do is we look where the weakness is. We look where the fault or the problem is and we spread it. In Proverbs 10, 18, we can see he who spreads slender is a fool. The Bible has no room 
for people who slander. And it is so serious that a slanderous man has no place in the house of God and in his presence. Be careful. We should be careful what we do. And then we see, nor does evil to his neighbor. So there's and nothing you want to do to hurt your neighbor. You don't want to bring harm to anyone. He just says, I will not participate in evil. You know, we live in a world where people are willing to do different things because it is expected to do by others. We want to follow expectation. But this person says, I will not do evil to my neighbor. Who is your neighbor? It is everyone. The person next to you. It's a very simple method to say, everyone around us. And then we see something where we maybe don't know what it really means. It says, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. What does that mean? In the original, this is more than just reproach. And it means it carries a sense of social shame and rejection that is highly odious. So to, to reproach against his friend, it means to compromise a person's participation in society and thus to rob one of access to the basic structure of communal life. We would call it today shaming. So take reproach against his friend. You know why this is so dangerous? Because as a friend, you are the closest to the other, isn't it? Who knows you better than your friend? He is very capable of shaming you. And and sometimes, and often when we sit in the group settings, sometimes, unfortunately, we guys, we like to, you know, joke around, make some points with the girls. And we don't hesitate to throw our friend under the bus. Bringing reproach. Bringing, making him, bringing him to shame. It is a dangerous thing. And we see here that David says, this is not the man. This is not the character of the one who wants to dwell in um, in the sight of God. And then we see further, he moves along and he says, in whose eyes a reprobate is despite, but who who honors those who fear the Lord. Um, When you go back to the Psalm in verse four, we can see, In whose eyes a reprobate is despite. A reprobate is a person who is not a Christian. Who openly and very clearly says, I don't want to do anything with with God. I am, he's a reprobate. And he, in, in the eyes of the true worshiper, this person is despised. That means we don't admire, we don't value, we don't Lift up 
that person or the characteristics of this person. And often we see in practice, don't we look envious to the achievements and to the characteristics of the reprobate? What does that mean very practically? How often did you hear that people talk about Christians as boring people? Maybe as nerds? As people who don't know how to live? As people who are outside the society? And even in church, we classify people as the boring people. The awkward people. Why? Because they don't participate and enjoy the things of the reprobate. The true worshiper of God has a right view of that, what, is, what comes from God and distance himself from the reprobate. And we see, It is not that we people in the world think often that they are cool and desirable. Stop it. We see here, but in that verse, who honors those who fear the Lord. Do you honor the people who are fearing the Lord? This is a very strong statement, honoring them. Do you hold them special? Do you give them the proper value? Or do you despise them? Are we doing exactly the opposite? Lifting up the reprobate and despising the one who are honoring, uh, uh, the one who fearing the Lord? The wicked are glamorized and the righteous are often ridiculed, even amongst our midst. This is not the attitude. This is not the character of the one who abides in the sight of the Lord. And then we can see 4C to 5B. The true worshiper has a character of selflessness. Let's read with me. He swears to his own herd and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. So we see all of these things, the characteristics which are described here are characteristics of selflessness. We can see he swears to his own herd and does not change. The word, the promise, so swear, the word behind that is an oath. The one who makes an oath as a true worshiper, he will stay true to his oath, even if it costs something. We are often ready to do things if they are for free and we will be seen. But are we ready to do things if they cost us? If they will hurt us? I have to give an example here. In Germany, where I come from, people often move. And when they move, they always send out an email to the church and say, hey guys, I'm moving, you should come. And you go there and you see, 
oh no, I'm the only one who came. <laughs> you know that feeling? <laughs> A truck, yeah? And you're the only one. And you can see no other cars are there. It's just you. Two options. Turn the wheels and go. <laughs> or stay true to your word, even if it costs. This is talking about bringing to risk our own comfort and being willing to do what we promise to do. To swear, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does, and then next we see he does not put out his money at interest. That is, this is very interesting because we don't know about these things. If we need something here in America, everyone has credit cards, you know, and we just swipe it and we pay the interest. But back in the day, in the biblical time, people had no bank. And if they are in a real financial detriment, you need to help them. And in the law, and you can read that in Exodus 22, 25, it is not allowed to lend him something and to charge interest for that. The principle behind is, if you see someone suffering, don't help him for your own gain. Even our help is so polluted that in the help we seek gratification, we seek exaltation, and we seek our self-gain. There are people who will help you, but they will let you know and they will let you feel that they helped you. Are you one of those guys? The, the true worshiper, he does not put his money at interest. It's the principle that I help without seeking own gain, acknowledgement, or debt from the other person. And then we see, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. Again, it is about gain, being selfless. And we see here that the one who seeks to be a true worshiper of God, he is not, you cannot buy him. You cannot buy him off. He will stay with that what is true and he will live selflessly. And then now, thirdly, we move to our grand finale. And in verse 5, in the very last place, we see the promise. We see here, he who does these things will never be shaken. This is a promise of satisfaction. This is not a promise that if you live like that, nothing will happen to you in life. This is not a promise that you will just go away. Everyone else shakes, but not you. That's not the meaning behind it. The meaning is that God will give security in your life 
in any circumstance. And please don't forget the context. In verse 1, David is asking, Oh Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? And the answer and the conclusion comes in verse 5 when he says, He who does these things will never be shaken. It means he will not be put out, put away from where God is, from the dwelling place of God, from the presence of God. It is a promise of security. This is not speaking about physical stability, but this is speaking about spiritual security. It has the idea that this person is not moved away from the presence of the Lord. What a magnificent promise we have. We see here how David is driven by this deep desire of true worship to abide and dwell in the presence of God. And the answer from God is not a list of do's and don'ts. No, God's answer is deeper. It is your character. It is that who you are. Everything we read from here now are things that are born out of the deep desire to be with God and to dwell with God in his presence. And then we see from this desire, all of that, what happens in his life and about his character are flowing out. In summary, Psalm 15 teaches that the righteous are those who walk blamelessly, do what is righteous, speak truth from their heart, do not slander or do evil to their neighbor, honor those who fear the Lord, Lord, keep their promises, and do not exploit the poor, and do not take bribes to pervert justice. It is not about what you do. It is about who you are in any place, in, to any time that defines a true worshiper. And the marvelous promise to the true worshiper is that he who does these things will never be shaken. Let me ask you in conclusion and in ending, how do you respond to this? And is that a reality in your life? And we want to invite you to pray and afterwards to discuss these things in the discussions groups. Let's bow with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you knowing that we are weak and that we, in our own strength, cannot come to you. 
But Lord, you changed us, you saved us, and you made us new creatures. And we want to pray that you help us to seriously examine our heart so that we really know why we often don't desire to be in your presence. Why we often don't live a life of true worshipers. Lord, I want to ask you and pray to you for me and my brothers and sisters here. Don't leave us as we are. Lord, it would be devastating to be as we are. Lord, we want to change. We want to be people who are getting the goosebumps for the right thing. For you, Lord. And who desire and live motivated and driven by your presence. Help us now in the discussions group to be honest. Lord, help us not to make up a facade. Help us to open up and to examine our motives in our heart. I pray all of this in your son Jesus Christ's name. Amen.